Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Uh, we are on part two of a series we started last week called Through Peasant Eyes. It's a series on the parables, specifically the parables uh, in Luke. And what we said is we we want to go back through these some of these parables. But you've probably heard, especially the one we're going to talk about today, you've heard for sure. Um, but uh, even if you've heard them before and there's some familiarity there, Try and look at them through a different sort of lens, a lens of a first century peasant um, who typified a, a lot of Jesus' audience when he would sit on a hilltop. It would be mostly common folk people. I mean, people who are hand to mouth sort of thing. Like when he goes and um, he, he meets uh, the whole feeding of the 5,000 miracle is because many of them didn't have a lot of food to prepare to be able to come. I mean, this kind of shows you uh, kind of the, the kind of people that were, were in his audience and oftentimes attracted to Jesus and typify some of his parables. And so um, what would they see that we don't see? What would they hear that we don't hear? What would they understand that we don't understand? If you've ever gone to um, a museum and uh, you've been in there and you walk around and you're like, I don't belong, I don't belong here. Like I'm from the Tri-Cities, we don't have museums, right? You know what I mean? Um, you're like, well, we have the Reach Museum. Come on, you've never gone there. Don't lie to me. So it doesn't matter. You've, you, go to, you, go to, you go to museums and you stand in front of a painting and everybody, and there's like people in front of you, like the guy that I'm better than you, or whatever. And uh, and they're like, oh, and you're like, oh yeah, you know, you, I don't, you don't even know what you're looking at. Some of your wife comes over, spouse comes over, and you're like, what are you looking at? And like, I don't think I know what this is. But uh, and then she she buys you one of those headsets. You put in the headset. It's some British voice because it's always they're always British. They're smarter than us, and they begin to talk about, well, this is. You know how it. Uh, this is this is the era that was going on. This is if you see this, and what happens is something that was previously blurry becomes more into focus. Uh, something that was um, innocuous uh, all of a sudden becomes provocative. Um, something that was um, unclear becomes more clear, and something that was perhaps ugly becomes somewhat beautiful. And, and all and some of the things that look accidental all of a sudden become intentional based on the context of the story. So. That sort of history uh, reveals something to us, a different side of things. It's almost like a lens on a camera is like sharpening into focus this. And so for the sake of this series, what I wanted to do is go back through some of the parables of Jesus found in Luke, perhaps sharpen the lens a little bit, give you a little perspective on there. Um, and uh, you're going to have some familiarity, some bias entering into, especially the one today, as I mentioned, but um, perhaps there's some new things to glean from it as we go along uh, in that. So um, I mentioned that in the parables, whenever Jesus would talk in parables, there's two factors that would show up. There was always a commonality piece. He would talk about things that the uh, th- that his audience would have said, okay, yeah, I, I understand that. Like he would say, you're lost a coin. You ever lost a sheep? You ever had a relationship with a family member go south? Things that the average person in the audience, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people would be like, I have, or I know somebody that has, right? I mean, he would, his, his things were never extreme. It was never like, you ever had a, a, like a boat that just stopped working? You're like, I don't own boats, bro. You know, you ever had a summer home that's just too big for your family? And you're like, what are you talking about? Uh, so there's a commonality piece to it. And then there's always a call to action. And this is how we're going to end today. I just giving you the ending away early. 
a, a call to action. And uh, in, in a call to action, it was always like when the audience, they would hear it, but it wouldn't just be to hear it. Like the intention of telling it would be so that you would do something. You ever brought your kids into a room, you tell them something, you're like, I'm telling you this because I want you to go do something as a result of this. I want you to change your attitude. I want you to clean up your room. I don't want you to be like, God, we talked about this, right? If, if all it is is talk, then, then we're missing something. There's an angle that missed it. So uh, last week we said uh, the parable that we looked at was called the parable of the two debtors. The two debtors shows up in uh, a, a dialogue that takes place between Jesus and a Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisee has hosted a big banquet at his house. The village kind of shows up and part of the audience is uh, a woman who is a woman of the city, a woman of disrepute, all that kind of stuff. Um, and she sees the Pharisee snub Jesus and she overreacts in like a really passionate way. And, and, and uh, there's some dialogue that takes place and then Jesus has to kind of go along this line of forgiveness. And, and we said that there's, there's some things in there that you need to know that make, help make that story make sense. What was going on through the minds of her as she made these decisions to wash his feet with her hair and, and wipe them uh, with her tears and whatever. And then the Pharisee as, as well. So uh, if you missed that, you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks or uh, download our app and listen to last week's to kind of catch up with this. But for this week, we're going to be diving into one that is, again, far more, far more familiar um, called the, it's the Good Samaritan, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and it shows up in dialogue again, this time between a lawyer who's just trying to figure out what it is that he's supposed to do. Um, and then, uh, and then Jesus has the story that he's going to tell and then give them the call to action at the end. Now, I want to mention one thing, um, cause I didn't do this first service and I, and I need to do this. Um, in this story, because there's so much familiarity with this, I'm going to breeze through the first section. There's, it comes to add us in two different sections, two different pieces of dialogue. So we're going to just outline the first one and then go into a little bit more depth on the second one. Um, but there are going to be a few verses that I'm going to reference. Uh, one from the Song of Sol- um, the Psalms of Solomon, uh, which sounds like the Song of Solomon or the Psalms that were written by Solomon. Those sound like biblical books, but this one was not. It was an extra Jewish book written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called the, it's one of the apocryphal books. Um, so it didn't make the canon of scripture, um, it, but it does kind of set the stage for what was going on in terms of what was being taught to Jewish people in their churches by their priests and what kind of books they were reading at the time. Okay. And then there's another one called the book of Sirach. If you try and open up your Bible, I had people first service being like, I don't think my Bible has this. Yours doesn't probably, unless you have a Catholic Bible, which they would have some of that. But um, for the most part, uh, your Bible probably doesn't include these two things. Um, and it's probably, you're, you're going to find out why. It's for good reason that the church elected not to include these two books. Once you see the teaching, that'll make sense. Uh, but I just don't want you to get lost in there or get sidetracked in there. They are, they're, I only bring them up, not because I think that they're on equal par with scripture. I don't think that they are, but I think that they communicate what the culture was like at the time, which is, again, what we're trying to do. So, all right, with that uh, being said, uh, the Good Samaritan, a familiar story for most, uh, even if you're not really a religious person, didn't grow up in church, you have some sort of a familiarity with it. We have laws in our nation uh, that are based around Good Samaritan laws. If you see somebody who's hurting, you can go do some help. And even if you cause harm in the process, if you through the process of giving CPR, if you uh, break a rib by accident because you're just trying to save their life because you're doing whatever, they can't sue you for breaking their rib. You know what I mean? If somehow they survived. Um, that's called Good Samaritan Laws. So don't try that. That's not like, let's all go find somebody who needs CPR today. Um, uh, and then, uh, so so uh, we're, we're familiar with this. And there's a sense in which we're so familiar with it, we just know 
when we hear this story, um, our response is like an, it's, it's an ethical encouragement to like see people in need and do something about it, right? That's what we would say. What's the point of the Good Samaritan? And that's true, right? I don't want to say that that's not what the story is about. That, that is absolutely true. But what if it was, what if there was something more? What if there was things un, a, that we don't often take into consideration? What if, like one person I read this week uh, says, it's a highly scientific piece of instruction clothed in a deceptively popular style. It's a highly scientific piece of construction or instruction clothed in a particularly um, or deceptively popular style. In Luke chapter 10, that's where it shows up a few chapters after what we talked about last week in Luke 7. Luke chapter 10, Luke records for us um, a, a lawyer, an expert of the law, um, approaching Jesus, standing up and asking him a question. Excuse me, teacher, I have a question. This would be in like a teaching setting. He addresses him as rabbi. He's coming at it, I think, a lot more genuinely than perhaps some of the other ones who are trying to trap Jesus. I don't think this kid was trying to trap Jesus. I do think he was trying to like ask a question to kind of prove his own smarts. You ever been in one of those classrooms? And he's like, yeah, they ask a question. And you're like, dude, come on. Hey, you probably either know the answer to that question or you just want to come across to the teacher as, I kind of know what you're talking about. So like, if you need help teaching the class, like I'm available, right? Um, stupid. So uh, that's a little bit about, that's probably more of the setting about what's taking place here, if I had to guess, right? So that's me reading into it. But two rounds to this. In round one, the lawyer stands up, says, Jesus, I, I have a question for you. Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? Uh, which... On our Western American mindset, we often, when we hear this, we think he's asking the question, what do I got to do to get into heaven? And it's a question that we've all asked um, or thought of, or especially when we were younger and we're like, I don't want to go to the other place. So like, what do I got to do to make sure I get into heaven? Right. And then, uh, you know, pastors will stand up for, well, you got to memorize scripture, you got to ask Jesus into your heart, you got to give to this church, um, you got to do some stuff, right? whatever the case may be, there's always kind of like this checklist to be able to do. So it's a reasonable enough question, although I don't think that's what he's asking here. I think there's a little bit at play uh, here. We'll get to that in one second. Um, Jesus responds to his question with another question, which is, it's uh, they call it the Socratic method, which is Socrates apparently always answered a question with a question. You've done this with your kids. They come up to you and go, can I have a snack? And you go, did you eat all your dinner, right? What is that? That's a, And they know if I answer no to that, then I'm getting my answer to whether I can or not I can have a snack. So we're familiar with this in practice, even if we don't do it in things. So he says, what does the Torah say? Or what does the law say about this? So then the lawyer is going to respond to Jesus's question. So question two, the answer to question two is the law says um, to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, uh, and mind. And he goes this long quotation thing, and to love my neighbor uh, as myself, um, which is a, like we're familiar with this because Jesus on a different occasion was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, there's not really one. There's two that kind of are linked together, and they go like this. And he recites the uh, Shema from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. This would be part of their daily prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? Um, and so they're like, this is what we're daily attuned to. This is what we know, we know, we know, we know. We are a people who are called to love God with every essence of our being. And then there's this combination of uh, a Levitical text that says talks about loving your neighbor. And this lawyer, either because he's heard Jesus talk about this previously, or because this sort of teaching was already going around in Jesus' day, um, that there is a 
horizontal element to loving others as well as a vertical element of loving God, that those two things exist simultaneously and life is best lived in this way. So he says, I think the law um, says, uh, says this, and uh, then Jesus says, go and do this and you will truly live. Now, one of the things that is interesting about, I think, the questioning of Jesus or the response of Jesus to the initial question is this guy is asking Jesus a question based on um, which category should I put you in? Which current teaching, which progressive sort of thought life thing are you, are you in? Because when we read about inheritance in the Old Testament, inheritance is always involving land, the land of Israel. Anything about inheritance is about Israel. The question itself, what do I got to do to inherit something, is kind of ironic in and of itself. What do you do? Nobody inherits, inherits anything by doing anything, right? You inherit it because you were born to this family. You were this man's son or this woman's daughter, right? I mean, this is, I get it. I don't have to do anything. That's part of inheritance. So he's not asking, there's a thing about this where there's an angle that he's coming to. And I think the angle is this. The inheritance language had always been surrounding the land of Israel. When you go, we, you know, Abraham, I'm calling you out to, uh, or Moses, I'm calling you to lead these people out of Egypt and into the land that I'm going to give you. You're going to inherit this land. And they did this, and this was a big deal for them. The land was important, land, physical land. Then they get there, and the Old Testament talks about how they fought people who were in there, and they set, you know, built homes, and then they exiled out of there. They go back, and what do they do when they're in exile? We can't wait to get back to the land that we, that, is our is ours right? We want to go back home. Um, that's the entire thing, the whole message of this thing. But when you when you find then after the end of the Old Testament, um, the kingdoms of the world come rolling in, right? The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, and then the Romans. Eventually, this they're they're in the land, but it's always in constantly under the jurisdiction of somebody else. And so they're trying to deal with this idea of this is our land, but it's not, doesn't feel like ours. That God is a God of this land, but how can he be a God of this land if we don't even have jurisdiction in our own land? So they begin to shift their thinking. Perhaps the land wasn't important. Perhaps the law that he gave to us on stone tablets is what's most important. Perhaps we can be a people not of the land, but of the law or of the book. So they begin to shift their thinking in this way. So this lawyer stands up and he's asking, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life, he's, he's basically saying, um, are you on board? Which category can I put you in? It's a current events question to him. It'd be a modern day equivalent of somebody, if Jesus was here, saying, hey, Jesus, real quick, position on gun control, position on abortion, position on capitalism in America. What should we do about homeless situations? Like that's what's taking place when he asks this question, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Guys, it's not about, he's not asking, what do I got to do to spend eternity somewhere? He's asking, um, about this life, about this Torah. So then, so then Jesus responds with, um, well, what do you, how do you recite it? That's the best thing. He says, how do you read it? Or when you recite it, what do you say? And then he begins to recite these creeds to him. And Jesus says, then go and do this and you will live. And the verbs that he's using in there are like these present tense verbs, meaning go and do this and you'll experience a life that's actually worth living. Go and do this, and the life that you've always wanted is right there for you. Orient your life in this way, and I'm telling you, it will be worth your time. That's what Jesus' essentially response to him is. 
Then we're going to get to round two uh, of this thing, and I'm going to read this part uh, for you. Uh, and this is going to show up in... Uh, uh, oh, oh I, I need to go back for, for one second. I mean, this is a... Because this idea of Jesus saying, go and do this, it reflects this continuous deal. What the, what the guy wanted was a checklist. What, do I, what are the, some things that I need to do? And Jesus de- doesn't give him a checklist. He gives him an orita- orientation of his life. Go find yourself doing this and you'll experience the life that's worth living. It's, it's the same thing as somebody comes up to me and, or you know, somebody or whatever and, and says, hey, it's, I know it's uh, Valentine's Day week and I just want to know, what do I got to do to like, love my spouse well? What do I got to do to like, love my wife? And, there, and if you want a checklist, like it's really tough. Buy a card, uh, be available. Uh, you know what I mean? But like you, you in your marriage relationship or a significant other relationship or whatever, you don't want it to feel like a checklist. You don't want to get the end of the night. Did you have fun today? Could you mark? Could you mark all of the things that I did? Is this, are we good now? Like I'm, am I, like you know it's an orientation thing. I, I would say something like every time that you see her, Give her, extend to her the grace that you would wish that she would, that you extend to yourself. Extend to your significant other the grace that you um, extend to yourself, right? And that's not a box that you can check. That's something that's like, I got to do this. That feels like I'll never get that done. That feels like a continuous challenge. That feels like an orientation of the heart. And that's true. And that's right. And that's a much better way of defining this relationship as opposed to, here's six things you need to do to make sure that your wife loves you, right? And I did the, I did the list and you're like, that feels programmatic. That feels weak. That feels like flimsy and cheap. It is. It's flimsy and cheap. It's not about that. It's about a heart orientation. And Jesus knows that. That's why he's drawing this guy into this sort of thing. Then the response to this, in, instead of sitting down and being like, thanks, Jesus, thanks for your time, I'll, I'll pass the mic to the next person, this lawyer goes, uh, uh, one more question, two-part question, forgot to mention that, two-part question, Those are my, it's my favorite part of Q&A, nobody ever just has one question, it's always two-part question, two-part question, first part this, second part, I want to get it all in, two-part question, uh, in, 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 uh, Luke says, in an effort to justify himself, um, meaning he wants to like, figure out how to make himself look good. I'm going to ask a question that's going to make me look good. Or the message version, some other translations have, in an effort to find a loophole, in an effort to make a loophole, I know that this says this. I want to make sure that I'm communicating that I've done this. So I'm kind of asking for a friend. But what would you say, right? This is his way of going, in an effort to justify himself, he asked the question, well, who then is my neighbor? Before I sit down, you've just said, or I've told you, love God, love your neighbor. Jesus is like, yep, that's the one. Do that and you know, have that orientation in your life and you won't regret it. You'll live a life that's worth living. Cool. Who ca- falls in the category of my neighbor? Now, what I, I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk through these books uh, that, that are, show up as extra biblical literature or whatever. Um, they're... There was an attitude amongst them that kind of went against this sort of thing, right? Um, there was in Leviticus, in, the, in a biblical book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 17, it says this, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anybody among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So this, this is where this guy's getting this idea of, I need to love my neighbor for sure. But there's also an attitude that goes beyond this. Um, this for them was an example of, yes, I should do this, but 
I qualify it with, I'm going to love my neighbor, but my neighbor is very clearly defined as fellow Israelites who are among our people. What about people who don't fall into that category? What about people beyond this? What are people who are excluded from this? There was public division over who was in and who was out and who qualified in this way. And that's what this person's asking about. So who qualifies as my neighbor? One of their commentaries on Ruth, they would call it a midrash, but uh, a midrash on the book of Ruth. It's a book in the Old Testament. And the, the, there was a lot of controversy about Ruth getting into the Old Testament because it highlights a Gentile woman as the hero of the story. Not just a woman, but a woman who wasn't even Jewish. She was a Moabite woman who married into a Jewish family. Um, but she's the hero of the story. And people are like, well, you know, Moabites, they're not really Jewish. But she kind of, you know, we'll give her a kind of a pass because she married into the family. But it was a big, con- it was a big controversy piece. And there's a Midrash on Ruth that says this, the Gentiles amongst whom and us, there is no war. And so those that are keepers of sheep among the Israelites and the like, we are not to contrive to their death. Brandon, I think we have this on the screen. Yeah, here we go. But if they be in any danger of death, we're not bound to deliver them. Such as one, such a one is not thy neighbor. In other words, we have Gentiles who live among us. You guys know who they are. They keep our sheep. They flip our hamburgers. They, they wash our cars. They do our stuff, right? Um, but we are not to contrive their death. Like we're not baseless humans that want them to die. But if they're in a ditch or in a danger of death or if they're on the side of a road, you don't really have to do. The obligation to love your neighbor doesn't extend to them. That's what's being taught to these people. That's the world that this Jewish lawyer is coming from that they have figured out a way to make a system that sounds really good in its place. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor. But they've heavily qualified the neighbor based on who is and who isn't my neighbor. And I read something this week that I thought was interesting about this. Love doesn't begin by defining its objects. It discovers them. You don't figure out what you love by trying to describe what it is that you love. You discover it over time, what you actually love. It falls in the same category if you only believe the things that you do. What do you love? You can tell me what you love, but let me observe your activity for a while, and I'll tell you what you actually love in life. So in the same way, Jesus is trying to, going to try and help this young man discover who his, true, his neighbor truly is and who is worth loving. So he begins to tell what we call a parable, a story. We're going to dive Verse by verse through this. Or I'm going to read the whole thing together and then we'll go verse by verse. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. In reply, in reply to the question of who then is my neighbor, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and he, they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put a man, he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law, the lawyer replied, the one who had mercy on him. Go and do likewise. So, from the perspective, through peasant eyes, what are they hearing when they hear this parable being told? They're familiar with the 17-mile road from Jericho or from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jerusalem sits on a hill. Jericho's down below. It would be a steady descent all the way down, 17 miles, and a very dangerous road for them, a dangerous road throughout history. In the annals of the Roman Empire, um, Pompeii would 
specifically mentioned this road as a very difficult one that fought that had lots of resistance and bandits when he uh, kind of overtook that area. The Crusaders, when they would uh, during the Crusades, they would have built a fort halfway through this road as a kind of a safe haven for pilgrims who were making their way to um, Jerusalem. This would have been this is for them. When Jesus says, once upon a time, there's a man coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they would have been like, oh boy, here we go, right? And, and, and I was trying to think of like dangerous roads for us. The only thing I could come up with was anytime somebody says that they're making the trip to Seattle, my immediate response is, have you checked the pass? I'm like a dad. I'm like so dad right now. Like, have you checked the pass? You only look it up for you. I'll look it up. Barren dry says barren dry, right? Like, Nobody cares what the road from Grandview to Prosser looks like. You know what I mean? You've never checked that in your life. But it could be like 90 degrees and sunny, and you're like, we should check the pass. Just in case, just in case. You never know what happens to Snoqualmie. So immediately, as soon as Jesus says this, like light bulbs, triggers are going off in their brains. That's a dangerous spot. I know somebody, man. They got robbed there. They got they, my, my cousin died there. They lost everything. Anyways, um, so they would be familiar with this sort of story. Uh, and once upon a time, this man was going on, on this road. And Jesus is careful to do a couple of things. One, to not describe this man in detail too much. He didn't say he's a Jewish man. He didn't say anything about him. All he said was that he was beaten, stripped, robbed of, his, uh, of everything, and left to die. Um, Usually, uh, you can identify strangers back then in two ways, by the way that they talk or by the way that they dress. But in this case, neither of those things are at play. He's probably unconscious, unwilling, un unable to talk, and he has no clothes. So I'm sure Jesus is trying to say, we're not talking about a specific person. We're talking about just a genuine, at, at its most base form, a human being in need. When he's like, who's my neighbor? Well, let's start with just somebody who needs help. And you don't even know which category to put them in. <clears throat> then he says, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan walk into a bar. You know how the joke goes. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it, he, he brings these three categories of people. And for them, as in peasant eyes, they would have heard um, somebody high class, middle class, and lower class. Somebody who's got lots of influence money. Um, the priest is definitely riding on a horse, right? Or a, 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 a donkey or something. Uh, there, there's, there's, uh, he's probably coming from serving at the temple. They would, um, they would be in the surrounding areas, but priests of the town would be assigned um, once a year or once every other year or so to come do a two-week shift at the temple. It was like the highlight of their year. They'd be able to go work in the Holy of Holies, make you know, sacrifices, do the stuff, see all the friends, then they would go back to their village. So he's probably, for them in this story, going back home to wherever he's from after kind of the two-week high for this. And in the world at this time, priests like him would have been expected to provide teachings for the people um, and walking them through this. And one of those priestly documents is called the Book of Sirach. Again, an apocryphal book, not in the Bible, don't worry, but very much in the mindset of the current reading of the day. And here's what the book of Sirach, chapter 12, verses one through seven says. If you do a good turn or something good, know for whom you are doing it. Then your good deeds will not go to waste. Don't waste a good deed on a loser. Do good to a devout man and you will receive a reward. If not from him, then certainly from the most high. 
Give to devout man. Do not go to the help of a sinner. Do good to a humble man. Give nothing to a godless one. Refuse him bread. Do not give him any. It might make him stronger than you are. Then you'd be repaid evil twice over for all the good that you've done him. For the Most High himself detests sinners and will repay the wicked with a vengeance. Give to the good man and do not go to the help of a sinner. Now, perhaps you can see why people are like, maybe we don't include that one in the Bible. <laughs> maybe that one's not one. But that's what that's the mindset of these people. So how, because we, we read this and we're like, how could a priest possibly see somebody who's hurting from so far off coming from a, coming home from church, see him from far away off and not even get close enough to identify the person, nor could he probably have, and, and because of fear of ritual impurity, I don't want to, if I go and help somebody, then I'm ritually impure and I'm not able to do my job at home. I'm going to have to come back from being in church and, people like, and I'm going to have to stand outside the gate and do this like ritual cleansing thing for two weeks. Like, ugh, boring, right? So I'm going to steer my dog. I'm going to act as if maybe I don't even see it and go on the other side of the road and pass along this way. How, in, in our way, we, we would say how, because here's why. We are, we grew up in a good Samaritan sort of culture. We, we, you know, this story makes sense. We share videos of people who do this, right? We share videos of people who help out strangers and we're like, be more like this guy from the keys of our keyboard, right? Um, and and we're, we're, we, uh, we're so biased in that way. We, we fail to understand that this was how they lived. They lived with such a, structure of rules and do's and don'ts of religion that it began to affect their ability to see people for what they needed, for their, for their basic human need. It's almost as if the more religion they had, the less useful they were in helping out people that they didn't know, which if you're not really a church person, you're like, not much has changed, Brent, just so you know, right? Touche, I get it, but trying to change that. That's part of it. All right. That's why we're here. So um, he makes, the, the biggest notation to make is that the priest makes his decision from the furthest away. He sees him from a long way off and passing the other side of the road. Then the Levite shows up. Uh, a Levite would have been somebody from the tribe of Levi. They would have been people who work in the temple, but not as high as the priest. These would be the caretakers of the of the temple grounds. Uh, they would have some ritualistic concerns about if I go and help this person, I'm not going to be able to serve. But I'm not like a priest. I'm just like a church worker. I work for the church, but I'm not the pastor. Something like that, right? Uh, the Levite almost certainly knows that there's a priest ahead of him. Word travels fast on roads that are dangerous like this. The descent would have been, as I mentioned, from Jerusalem on the way down to Jericho. You can see a long ways when there's um, when when the land isn't flat. When it's lower, you can you know, or or it's higher. You can see quite a, quite a different ways. And for sure, them having traveled that road, they would know when you're on that road. Information is critical. You talk to people who are coming this way, and you say, "Did you see anything? Was there any danger?" And they and they say, "No." And you say, "Nothing here either. Don't worry about it. You're safe this way." I mean. That kind of a language, that's how people survived, was passing the information on. So he comes to this and he sees this body. He knows that this priest just passed by. And if he knows that the priest just passed by, he's probably thinking, if a priest passed by, who am I? Like, I shouldn't, I don't want to help this person out. There's probably a reason the priest didn't. Maybe he knows something I don't know. And I don't want to like step on his toes or make him feel bad about his interpretation of scripture. So he also, he came near the body. He came nearer. He like came close and then he kind of went on. He came by it, but didn't stop. Then the Samaritan, after the appearance of the priest and the Levite, the audience no doubt expects 
the third part of the story. Anytime there's a third part, we always know, right? We're, we're so attuned to like three things you need to know about. One, two, three. The third one is going to be like the big one, right? That's going to be the, the so they, they're, they're familiar with this. They know how storytelling works. And I'm sure that they thought, if you're talking about a priest and a Levite, the next category is just a common Jewish person, somebody from the other 11 tribes. So for them, to him to make the jump to Samaritan is to do such a huge giant leap. There's not that big of a jump from priest to, uh, to Levite and not even a big jump from Levite to Israelite. But the jump from Levite to Samaritan is enormous. It's really, really big. Nobody imagined Jesus plugging a Samaritan at this part of the story. Back to that book of Sirach, the one that didn't quite make the cut for reasons we know why. Chapter 50, verse 25, 26. Listen to this poetry. There are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not even a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir and the Philistines and the stupid people living at Shechem. Isn't that great? This feels like a Reddit post from somebody who's just (laughs) angry at life and got bullied in high school. You know what I mean? But like this whole idea of there are two nations and my soul says three is not a nation at all. That sort of language shows that you read like the poetry, you read Psalms, you read Proverbs, and these kind of things, they're, they're trying to make a point. They're trying to say, these people, and anytime they go two and then, and then there's one more after that, it's the one more that they're trying to emphasize. One is not even a nation at all. The Samaritans and the Jews had this like big beef because they, they called them half-breeds. They called them Jewish people that intermixed with outside people. And so you're not even really Jewish people you know, in, in, anymore. And you can't worship on, on Mount Sinai. You have your own uh, mountain that you kind of worship on. It was, it was a big deal. So they're tr- he's trying to emphasize this is the fact that Jesus would use this. Imagine, I mean, pick a category of people. You're like, who do Americans really dislike, right? I'm not, we're not going to, everybody's not going to say, we're not going to say it on three, right? We're not that kind of a church. <laughs> but if we were, whatever the majority of it, that's what, that's what Jesus would say. That sounds like a really bad practice. Don't do that. So if Jesus had done a story about a Jewish people helping out a Samaritan, that would have been bad enough, but they would have been like, ugh, all right. I guess we, pro- you know, it's, this is a new teaching of a rabbi. I get that. The fact that he made a Samaritan the hero of the story almost makes them go, I don't even know if you're worth listening to. Like, that's how bad it really was. The priest only goes down to the road. The Levite comes to the place. The Samaritan comes to the man. The robbers robbed him and beat him. The Samaritan offers him first aid, then pays for his recovery. So it's like this inverse reaction. Everything in this story that happens is always an inverse reaction of this, right? So they robbed him, they beat him. He heals him and then pays for his recovery. And then Jesus' response to this, uh, after telling this story, he's, again, this Socratic answering a question with a question. So who, who would you say uh, operated like a neighbor to this person? The lawyer said, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and you, you do likewise. Go and you, you do likewise. And he's trying to impress something on this lawyer. He's trying to encourage him to see things a little differently. Like, again, he's already mentioned it's, it's not going to be a checklist. Life is never going to be about a checklist. It's going to be about a heart orientation about this. And what is that heart orientation? To do things for people in need? Yes, that's part of it. But I think he's also encouraging him to see a little bit deeper. You keep trying to build a case in the way that you're asking me these questions. It seems like you're trying to build a case for your heavenly father to like you or be thankful that you're on his team or he's lucky to have you after all that I've done for you. 
And Jesus would say, it's not like that at all. It's not like that at all. When you do these things, it's not going to be that God's more in love with you because of these things than he was beforehand. He's simply saying, God loves you already. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. You can't change that. What you're going to find out if you go along this path is you will experience a life that is actually worth living. You will inherit eternal life, which is a life that you don't want to end, which is a life that's like there's a fullness that comes from this. That's what Jesus is saying to this. So to this lawyer, he's trying to get him to go to understand, I must become a neighbor to anybody in need, which feels very open-ended, and I'll never be able to check that box. And Jesus would say, exactly. It's never been about checking a box. It's begin, it's, it's always been about heart orientation. <clears throat> Any attempt at self-justification is doomed to failure. The standard's too high. Eternal life cannot be achieved or earned. Love is something that you do and that you never stop doing. So Jesus' invitation to him, his call to action is, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do? How are you going to think? What are you going to, how are you going to respond? And we never get the answer again. Uh, and uh, how these parables often end, we don't hear if the older brother and the prodigal son goes into the home and celebrates with the, the, the man. We don't know if this Pharisee who was offended that this woman washed the feet of Jesus and did all the things that he wasn't that he was supposed to do as a hospitality person, right? Um, we don't know the response. We don't know the response of him. But it really wasn't about him in the first place. Jesus created this setting, knowing that there's an audience around him watching him work through this, think through these things. And Luke writes this down for us. So we're in the same exact position. What are we going to do with this? What is our call to action? Should we help people in need? Absolutely. I think that's the base level of understanding of this. Sure. Absolutely. But why? What are the motives beyond that? So that... Uh, my mansion is bigger in heaven so that I get gold stars so that Jesus loves me. No, that's cheap and weak. That's not what we're talking about. He's saying, listen, that is already settled. That's been settled, but you'll experience a life. You'll experience, inherit, inherit eternal life as a result of this. You'll experience a life that's worth living. Go and do this. Orient your heart in this way. Wait and see. Taste and see. I think you'll like it. I think you'll enjoy it. That is the invitation to us, if we should hear it and do something with it. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that uh, you would help us to uh, go through our life and recognize uh, what it would look like to live not just for ourselves, but beyond this, to love you, to have this vertical element, absolutely, but have this horizontal element as well of loving others. And that those two work hand in hand, that Jesus refused to break those two things apart. And uh, I pray that we would engage in these, to these things, that this idea to the best of our ability, and that we would then experience not a God who finally loves us because we've done enough, but a life that is worth living. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like. I encourage you to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.